This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Bill Edgar began his career as professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary in 1989 and retired last year in 2022. But his Westminster roots run even deeper than his 33-year tenure. Edgar's great-great-grandfather, an elder at First Presbyterian Church in New York City, helped endow Princeton Seminary in 1811. In 1929, Westminster was founded in response to Princeton's liberal drift. By 2017, Princeton Seminary had drifted so far that the school revoked Tim Keller's Kuiper Prize over his view on women's ordination and homosexuality. For more than two centuries, the Edgar family has been wrapped up in the drama of doctrine in Presbyterian seminary education. Well, in this special season of Gospel Bound, we're exploring several key influences that appear in my book, Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. Tim Keller taught at Westminster from 1984 to 1989 and earlier earned his Doctor of Ministry through the school. Edgar's career has intersected with Keller's at numerous points, from Francis Schaeffer to Ed Clowney to Cornelius Van Til and the work of cultural apologetics. I'm eager to ask him now about these trends and figures on Gospel Bound. Bill, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Let's just right, let's get some of your more of your story out there. It's so fascinating. You were converted through the by the Lord through the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. Tell us that story. Yeah. Well, uh, the short version is that um, you know I was a seeker, as we'd call them today. Uh, grew up in a, with a wonderful family that had no answers to the deeper questions of life after the war, uh, though they had high values. And so I, I was a seeker, and I went to Harvard University. And there I took a course, it was a, a distribution course, and the section instructor was a believer named Harold O.J. Brown. He was doing his uh, doctoral work in the history department at the time, and he actually boldly proclaimed his faith in our class. He didn't. He did it in a very appropriate manner. Uh, he didn't preach at us, but he... You know, when we did the Greeks, he said, by the way, here's a contrast with the Christian worldview. When we did Shakespeare, he said, well, this man lived in a Christian universe. Anyway, it was really intriguing. I'd never heard anything like it. We, be- we became friends. And make a long story short, I was going to Switzerland that summer. This was, I think, in 64. And um, he said rather nonchalantly, Oh, well, you must look up my good friend Francis Schaefer. He and I have a lot in common. I think you'd enjoy him. That's all he said. 
Well, he gave me a phone number. <clears throat> and uh, so about halfway through the summer, I decided, you know, I'll try this place out. And I phoned up and Edith got on the phone and said, oh, you must stay for a few days. And I said, wow, uh, what is this? And, I, you know, it was the 60s, so I was full of adventure. I thought, well, let's, let's try this out. I sold my bicycle, bought a train ticket, and got up on the very circuitous route to Labrie in those days and was met by some dear dear people, uh, many of them not believers. And uh, that evening, we had what they called a discussion group, which was somebody would ask a 30-second question and Schaefer would answer with a 30-minute answer. That was discussion. <laughs> Anyway, I, I was enthralled. I was like in another universe. Uh, the subject that night was prayer. I'd never thought about prayer. I went to a boarding school where we prayed the liturgy, but I, I didn't really participate. And uh, after the talk uh, uh, discussion, he came up to me and said, do you, you have a minute tomorrow? Let's have a conversation. So I said, sure. So... Um, after this wonderful church service where we sang Bach chorales, so I was, you know, they had me at hello. Um, he, we went, I went up to the little counseling room and we spent a couple of hours talking. Uh, and it's, it was a long conversation, but at the end of which I knew it was true. And uh, he made me pray, which was very strange. Uh, but I, I did, and I, I, you know, tears flowing down my eyes, I thanked God for all he'd done. And then I stayed the rest of the summer there and studied all of his uh, materials. And I came back to Harvard, an on-fire Christian, made the usual mistakes that new believers make, um, but uh, was very, very persuaded and decided instead of going into musicology which was my chosen profession i would uh, i would postpone that and, and go to seminary for a few years to find out what it was i had stumbled on and uh so for various reasons a bunch of us went to westminster seminary and that's where i encountered these remarkable uh stalwarts edmund Clowney, john murray E.J. Young and Cornelius Van Til and others, and uh, it was really life changing to use a worn expression. Um, and I emerged from it thinking, what what we really need in this world is somebody to communicate the gospel in a credible way. And so I abandoned my ambitions as a musicologist, I, although I kept in touch with that world, and uh, went into teaching. Uh, at first I was a school teacher we had an evangelistic outreach to high school kids and then I took a job in Aix-en-Provence at a, at a seminary there which is really where I cut my teeth and then in 1989 we, for various reasons we decided to come to the States and I had a position in apologetics at Westminster and as you said just a few months ago I, I retired um, which is a bittersweet experience. Bitter because I really miss the atmosphere and the students and my colleagues. Sweet because I've been able to do more reading and writing. So um, 
that's my story. That's great. Well, you came to Westminster professionally as Tim Keller was leaving. Just give us a taste for how the two of you have collaborated over the years. Yeah. Curiously, I first met Tim in West Hopewell, Virginia. Oh, oh wow. He didn't tell me this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, to be a professor at Aix-en-Provence uh, required having a church provide your salary because they had no budget, no money. And so uh, at first, very reluctantly, and then uh, with some enthusiasm, we did what they call itineration, which means to go around to different churches. It used to be called deputation. Go around to the different churches and um, tell them. You didn't have to solicit. They said the office will do that. You just tell them about the ministry. So I, I told them about the great need for the gospel in southern France. And uh, Tim was the pastor of that church, and we really hit it off. Um, was that How did uh, you get connected? Did Kennedy Smart connect you? Who connected yeah, you there? Yeah, exactly right. Okay. Uh, the, the, the Missions yeah. of the World Department of the PCA sent us to different places that wanted to support missionaries. And those are the early days of this denomination. So they were looking for people to support. And uh, we went to many churches, and uh, West Hope felt well was a special one. It was small but vibrant. And, uh, you know, I, I met Tim, and we, we've stayed in touch ever since. Now, tell us a little bit more about Westminster when you arrived, and was there still evidence of, of Clowney's influence? Oh, big time. In fact, it was because of Clowney that I decided to take this job. And, um, you know, I've said no to a lot of people in my life, but never to him. So, uh, and it was a bit odd because his son was just leaving a position in apologetics at Westminster to teach yeah. philosophy. Hey, David, right? David, right. Yeah. He's still a very close friend. We we played in a jazz band together, and, you know, he's one of my dearest friends. But anyway, um, so I took up the position, and he wrote me a long letter saying, here's what to expect, and it was uh, very helpful. Um, so Ed Clowney's imprint was all over the seminary. Uh, first of all, he, he uh, had emphasized biblical theology, and almost all of the professors, particularly in the Bible department, uh, espoused this this view. Um, second of all, he had wanted, to the resistance of some board members in the 60s, to expand the seminary so that it would have a global outreach. And he went and spoke at, you know, Urbana and he he went and recruited in these universities and this may sound strange but not all the professors wanted westminster to become you, you know world known they thought a small seminary with a few graduates that's what we want to do but he persuaded them otherwise and so his you know his his impact was all over the place and uh so i i stayed very close to him um helped to to do his funeral when he went to be with God. And um, I kept in touch with Gene and and then, as I mentioned, with David and, and the other kids as well. So his, his influence at Westminster is incalculable. You know, uh, 
I did interview you, of course. You graciously helped me with the book on Tim Keller. And um, I can't recall where I was in the process when I talked with you, but I had um, I just sat there and I didn't I didn't I was facing a long day of writing, but I didn't know how it was going to come together. And somehow it seems like the spirit led me to land on 1969, which would have been what like the 40th commencement, I think, something like that. And, yeah, that's uh, when I graduated. Yeah, uh, there you go. Uh, so so Lloyd Jones. Is there right. and he's there for I think he stayed for six weeks something like that to teach. Yeah, we had a course by him. Yeah, and um, and I and I looked and and it was it was very arresting that Clowney's message as president was the seminary has been known for the closed fist. It's time to be known for the bowed head. Wow! And then he went through and he explained the new vision for Westminster. He said it would be marked by piety. Um, this be again a, the bowed head, a place of prayer, a place of revival. Um, and then he said it's going to be a, then a second it's going to be a place of biblical theology, right? Um, and then which you've already described there. And then the third thing he said was, and it's going to be a place of basically cultural apologetics. And that's when he was talking about the the courses that 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 they were doing. This would have been I'm trying to think of who all that Claire Davis, of Davis course, there. Um, Jack Brain Miller. Jack Miller. Yeah. Jack Miller was there. John Frame had just come on board. So these were people who had this same burden. Right. So and I and and that was I mean of course I didn't know that history with Westminster, but not only that, I hadn't gone back and realized I've worked for two th- since 2010 for the Gospel Coalition founded by Tim Keller. And what did he do to set out a place that would be devoted to piety, to biblical theology, to cultural <laughs> apologetics. But yeah. he was just perpetuating the clowny vision. Absolutely. And they gave seminars together, which were electrifying. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I love that work, by the way. Um, you don't have to record that, but I just think it's unique, and um, th- there's a very important place for it in in the world. So yeah. I'm so glad you're involved in it. Well, let, let's let's talk about Van Til. And if you could explain to us what made Cordelius Van Til a groundbreaking apologist. And, and, you know, the related question here is what's his influence on Tim's preaching and teaching and writing? Because I, 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 didn't, I didn't dwell on that. Tim does not often publicly credit Van Til. He doesn't cite him as his, one of his top sources. So let's just start with the, the who. You know, what, what developments did he help to contribute to the work of apologetics. Yeah, wow. That's a wonderful question. Uh, and it would take weeks to answer <laughs> I know. properly. Um, my uh, mentor and first boss, Pierre Coutial, said he was the most original apologist in the 20th century. And when he said original, he meant he had broken ground. Uh, now, Van Til would have said, I'm in the tradition of Augustine and Calvin and Kuiper, uh, and the only ground I'm breaking is to challenge some of the reigning apologetic methods, which at the time were, um, I hate the word, but Arminian. They were, they started from below and reached up to, to above. And Van Til said, no, we really got to start from above and uh, reach down below. So he sort of reordered theology 
based on revelation and the self-attesting God, um, the self-attesting scripture, the self-attesting Christ. Now, this may sound like it should have issued in a shouting match. And there are sadly some would-be Ventilians who Ventilians who who do just shout. But he he was he didn't have that view. He believed that there was persuasion, and, and his view, which influenced Francis Schaeffer a lot, was that you need to get over onto the ground of an unbeliever's worldview in order to show him or her how untenable it is on its own merits. And That's then Tim he, Keller uh, to the core right there. Keller Sorry, to the core. Yeah. yeah. And then he said the next step is to invite them to the Christian worldview and um, taste and see. Uh, now, you know, I think Keller had this through Schaefer and others, though you're right, he, he, he doesn't credit Van Til a lot. Um, there are people, me included, I think, who hesitate to use his name too much because of the bad connotations that he has with some people. In his great book, The Reason for God, he uses what I consider to be essentially Vantillian insights, but he do, he goes places Vantill never went. Vantill was an academic. He was in the classroom. Um, Tim was in a busy city. Tim talks about uh, the challenges facing uh, believers. Uh, how, how can Christianity be the only truth? What about the Crusades? And, and all these questions. And Van Til had answers for those, but we talked mostly about epistemology in his classes and how Kant was behind so many of our of our, of our problems. So uh, Keller, in the more Schaeferian tradition, which is dependent on Van Til, um, was about persuasion, getting onto the ground of unbelief and showing how it can't work on its own terms. And that book is a masterpiece of doing that. Um, so, uh, you know, if he if you peeled the onion, he would probably say that some some of my thinking goes back to Van Til, uh, but a lot of it was filtered through Schaefer, through Clowney, uh, Jack Miller, and he were very close. Uh, so there's some mystery there. I, I don't understand all of it because Van Til was so groundbreaking and original but he managed to alienate some people. He had a, if you've read his stuff, some of it's a bit aggressive, and uh, not everybody likes that. Uh, but for reasons that I don't completely understand, he doesn't get the credit that it was due to him. Now, we try to perpetuate his tradition here at Westminster today. And... Um, my colleague Scott Oliphant, who is a professional philosopher, and I, who do who does cultural apologetics, uh, consider ourselves Vantillian. but we, uh, you know, we don't use the name a, a lot uh, because of what people imply by it. So uh, his, his influence is is very strongly at the seminary. One thing, let me just say this. Uh, when I got to Westminster as a student, uh, these great stalwarts, uh, E.J. Young and John Murray and, and Stonehouse and so forth, 
they were all hankering after what they called the old Princeton. And um, it, it was, grew a little tiresome to some of us younger kids who thought, well, I'm sure it was a great place, but we're now at Westminster. But what they did was they then added a very creative dimension that wasn't altogether there in old Princeton. So, for example, many of the Bible teachers saw a literary dimension to Scripture um, and an aesthetic dimension that that not all of old Princeton had seen. Um, and... Uh, so there were there was some artistry there, some some very creative and original thinking. John Murray's uh, systematic theology is all based on exegesis, which is based on biblical theology. Even Warfield, at his greatest, didn't do quite that. So I think I was there at a turning point, uh, still touting old Princeton, but then moving in a direction of create creative application and by the end of the 80s or the beginning of the 90s they didn't talk about old princeton much uh and it was all about what we're doing now reaching the world yeah well let's stay on that theme a couple more points here and i want to i want to talk to music maybe we'll come back to that at the end but um let, let's let's go further here on tim is there anything that Tim himself has uniquely contributed to apologetics, as you've observed him for almost his entire career. Oh, uh, there's lots. Um, I think Tim, because he's a pastor and loves people and loves the city, uh, is very strong on the application of the gospel to uh, contemporary issues. Um I've just finished his wonderful book on forgiveness. I mean, Tim has a, he's a doctor of the soul. And uh, you, you, you can't say that about, you know, the Van Tills and others, even Ed Clowney, who, who was on that same wavelength. He wasn't quite a, the doctor of the soul that, that Tim was, uh, is. I shouldn't put him in the past. He's still very much with us. Um, then second, uh, he, I think you and I have talked about this. He's frighteningly a voracious reader, and uh, on top of everything, he's unstumpable. And so, uh, you know, you you talk to him about, I don't know, Richard Wright or something. He says, "Oh yeah, well, the last two books that he did was was saying this, and it's scary." And what's good about it? He he wears it with a light hand. He's doesn't he's not uh kind of one of these heavy-handed i know all the answers but you you have confidence that he has um taken the best of what's around us and worked with it either to disagree gently or to agree and support and take further what they're saying so i think that's that's a i don't know if it's unique but it's one of the singular contributions that uh, Tim has made. Um, and then thirdly, uh, he's he has started institutions so that his thinking and the thinking of the you know the greats that he believes in, especially Jonathan Edwards, 
C.S. Lewis and others, can be perpetuated when he's not around. Um, I remember that, you know, when I used to interact with him a lot in New York, he was already talking about succession. Yeah. And, um, you know, some of the great leaders don't do that. Uh, I can think of one or two that probably didn't imagine that they would be they would die <laughs> and so uh and they did and the place went into shambles yeah. actually labrie is one example of that mm. they they recovered nicely but um yeah. uh yeah d james kennedy others yeah that's um, definitely one they just didn't imagine that, that they their um presence would be gone yeah. uh, tim was just the opposite he, yeah. he poured himself into, into institutions like faith and work yeah. um and especially city to city right um and he wisely gave the leadership of those to other people that that he considered more talented as administrators what one of the great one examples of this is terry geiger yeah um, terry who was completely on board with tim's emphases also had extraordinary administrative skills yeah so when he headed up uh, what became city to city, uh, he was able to not only maintain, but uh, help to flourish the that institution. So that today it, it's absolutely vital and um, has contributed to the planting of churches literally all over the world uh, without trying to make these churches into a carbon copy of the Manhattan church. Um, right. So that, that, I think, is one of the great gifts that Tim has brought. And uh, I hope he lasts for years and years and years. Amen. But if he doesn't, uh, his contributions will still be alive. Yeah. Well, and you, and you mentioned the, the, the difference that he's made in terms of applying the gospel to contemporary issues. Um, that aspect would certainly be the Gospel Coalition and would be a lot of the work that, that I've done with him over those years. That's just one little small aspect yeah, of all these go. other things that he's that he's spawned. And like you said, give an institutional form to them. You know, it was interesting, Bill, as I was reading that same forgiveness book, hadn't read anything from, well, I'd read a ton from Tim because working on the book, but I hadn't read something new from Tim <laughs> that I hadn't read already. And it just popped into my head. I said, this book is different from all the other things that I read, yeah. and here's why. It's triperspectival. Almost nobody gets the existential, the normative, and the situational in the same books. And that's exactly what he described with the doctor of the soul. He gets at, the normative is the theologian, the exegete, of course. Right. The situational is the cultural analysis. Right. But the existential is the doc, doctor of the soul. And an author who and preacher who can hit all three is exceedingly rare yeah well said very well said it just does not does not happen so that's no. that's why it just it so you can find lots of people that tim has learned from that you and i have learned from and we learn from them because they are so intelligent and so insightful or because they are so gentle or because they are such great theologians but not usually that they can combine them no amen to that yeah and uh, one, I mean, I just, I love the guy as a friend. I'm sure you yeah. do too. Yeah. Uh, we spent a lot of time together. Uh, one of the places for that is uh, something called the Gathering of Friends, <laughs> which meets every year in October. 
in Atlanta. And uh, the, the history of it is kind of fun, but uh, it's these guys who just enjoy being together. Yeah. And Tim is one of the guys. Yeah. He pipes up sometimes yeah. and says this and says that, <laughs> but he, he's not sort of the guru of the group. Yeah. And um, so I've, I've so enjoyed just being his friend and, you know, he, he, he asks questions <laughs> which seem to be genuine, uh, even though you would think he knows the answer to them. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's just fun to be with a guy who has such a inquisitive mind and he's such a genuine yeah. uh, spirit. So, uh, yeah, I wish I saw more of him. And uh, we no. do correspond, you know, and uh, right. But he corresponds with hundreds of people. <laughs> well, and that's, I think that's a dimension, Bill, that people are going to enjoy and learn from the book. And they're going to understand. I think there's most, you and I are blessed to be able to know that about Tim, but there's a, there's something for, for ministry uh -huh. to see here and just for life. Because when you go back, how did Tim come to faith in the community of InterVarsity? Yeah. At Bucknell. Then, how did he grow just by leaps and bounds? I don't know how anybody squeezed as much out of three years of seminary as he did. <laughs> because of his close friends. Yes. The lifestyle that they that they lived. And then, how did he learn how to be a pastor at that West Hopewell congregation in that extremely close knit community? So Tim, and and that is and that is also his evangelistic enterprise yeah. is that we come to faith through community. As the gospel yeah, is mediated and, he, and displayed. Models, he has various models. Uh, one of them sort of surprised me. It's You mentioned him earlier. It's Kennedy Smart. Yes. He said, this guy taught me um, how to love people and reach out yep. to them and not be afraid to, to speak out with them. Yep. And uh, that's true. If you know Ken, that's exactly what he does. Uh, and Still he, around, he, right? Uh, very much so. <laughs> oh, I, he's pressing 100, I think. Yeah, I know it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah. So Tim, that's very well put. What you said, he oh. he's modeled himself after extraordinary people and uh, has taken the best of them and uh, has you know put it into his own uh, mixture. Yeah. Well, let me ask about one of your emphases related to cultural apologetics. And though Tim was an accomplished trumpet player as a young man, he did not continue that for most of his life. Um, but you have been as, as a jazz musician. You've, you've continued that theme uh, for so much of your life. How have you seen jazz open doors to the gospel? Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> uh First of all, jazz emerged out of the African-American experience and particularly the experience of slavery and suffering. And it did so indirectly through spirituals and blues and ragtime and marching bands. But all of those converged to give us what we now call jazz, uh, something of a miracle, I think, like Renaissance art or Impressionism. It, it 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 sort of popped up out of all these sources, and in jazz there is this combination that I like to talk about of deep deep misery and uh, indistinguishable joy, and uh, you know a lot of music can be miserable, but there's not a whole lot of hope and joy, 
And then there's some music. Now, I won't take any cheap shots, which em emphasizes the happy, but that doesn't seem to have roots in the valley of the shadow of death. Jazz has all that, the best of it. And uh, though there's many different musicians and many episodes, the best of them all exhibit this narrative, I guess you'd call it, of deep misery to indistinguishable joy. And even in some of the more uh, hardcore bebop jazz that some people don't like very much, Miles Davis and Dizzy, and um, those elements are there. Uh, and uh, so... To me, it's a uh, it's not just a vehicle for the gospel. It's exhibit A of what God does in one genre um, and uh, that can be shared with the, with the rest of the world. So uh, you know, some people don't know jazz. Some people claim they don't like it. Most of them haven't heard it. Um, and uh, so in our little band, we've gone all over the world particularly in Europe, and uh, brought the music and then a narrative to explain where this music comes from. And uh, people absolutely love it. We, uh, I don't know if I've told you this, but when we played in Eastern Europe a number of times and we got to spirituals and the blues, uh, people teared up because they'd been under communism and they understood slavery. They understood uh, having hope through uh, misery. And um, so uh, it's just a, it's a universal message in that way, out of the black experience, but now shared by uh, all kinds of people, white people like me, uh, Japanese love jazz. Uh, there's all, all kinds of jazz lovers around the world but it, it began with the the african-american experience well i think for uh what jazz is uh for you to a to a lesser extent with my lesser abilities realist fiction is for me and as well as uh, some yeah. aspects of of historical fiction that borrow from the realist um uh the realist uh, techniques uh wow. there and and i i think it's and specifically russian and I think it's a lot for the same reasons you just identified. Absolutely. Right there. It's because it, it touches both the joys as well as the deepest sorrows and the yeah. significance of life and ultimately the hope that we That's can find wonderful, in God. That's a wonderful parallel. Yeah. Um, I have a course on theodicy, mm -hmm. uh, justifying God in the face of evil. And we use Russian novelists like Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Mm -hmm. Pushkin and so forth, right. and um, they all know what it is to be oppressed. Yeah, and most of them have have a great hope at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, you just you get some. Not, I mean, he was in a different category in terms of the work he was doing, but you get a different experience or a different insight on life from a Solzhenitsyn than you do yeah. from from most others because of what he's experienced yeah, and absolutely. how he survived. Um, yeah, that. absolutely. He, he, uh, he's one of my heroes, his famous, uh, 78 mm -hmm. speech at Harvard, exactly, which was disliked by many people <laughs> thinking, but prophetic, but, but so prophetic. And the, the thing that emerged in there for me, that, that was stronger than almost everything was the need for courage. Yeah. 
and he he's shown it. I mean, he's terribly Russian. He, he doesn't. I mean, he. His, if you read his uh, biography, which I'm sure you have, you know, he just he loves his motherland, and uh, not all Americans understand that. But it's it's deeply uh, part of who he is, and uh, so yeah, he's. I think he's one of the great heroes of our time. Well, I think uh, Dostoevsky was as well to a more dangerous aspect than Solzhenitsyn was because he'd seen different things. But that's yeah, a, a love of the very thing that they're criticizing yeah. is something that the Russians yeah, have done, done better, I think, than a lot of others. And a, a deep sense of psychology. Oh, my. Yeah. I mean, Dostoevsky's characters, yeah. all of them flawed. Yeah. Nevertheless, he loves and uh, teaches us to love them. And uh, that's what I get out of these, you know, much more than I'm sure uh, most people, and not as much as you, but <laughs> I, that's what I get out of these inc incredible novels. Well, Rus Raskolnikov is a is a work of absolute artistic <laughs> genius. Well, an, an artistic genius, by which I also mean psychological genius, by which then I also mean spiritual Genius. Yeah, absolutely. To understand the that. human heart and psyche. Yeah. And oh. Ivan is the same. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, well, what I mean, are there, we're talking about novels, we're talking about literature, we're talking about jazz. Are there other art forms that you found especially conducive for connecting unbelievers to Christ? Oh, well, the visual arts, uh, big time. One of Schaefer's, one of Schaefer's uh, emphases. Yeah, Schaefer emphasized that they were more illustrations than anything else for him right um and his best friend hans ruckmacher right was a better art historian yeah but also used the arts as an illustration that's there's nothing wrong with that but uh i've moved in a slightly different direction taking an interest in aesthetics uh, i've been guided by people like uh calvin Sirvelt and jeremy begbie and others uh, into the um, dynamics of how art works and what it expresses about us. And uh, so I regularly, when I was teaching, took students to the Philadelphia Art Museum and asked them to stand in front of a painting for 10 minutes before saying anything. And then we'd look at, well, how, how does how does Cezanne exude a Christian worldview when he didn't preach like a Christian? Or how, how does Monet uh, bespeak of God's creation without often mentioning God? And eventually students get it. And even in a lot of modern art, which is fashionable to despise, um, there are lots of great examples of the insights for example, I don't know, there's so many examples, but um, I guess uh, Giacometti, uh, who was a great sculptor, um, he specialized in sculptures of, of thin, almost emaciated people, but they're reaching up to the heavens. And um, he's deeply transcendental in his, in his outlook. And so it would be such a mistake to say, oh, well, he's thinning things out, a la Nietzsche. Um, 
another one of my favorite artists, although you don't think of him this way, is uh, Mark Rothko and the whole uh, expressionist movement. Um, he talked about his faith. It was very vague, um, sort of quasi-Jewish, quasi-pantheistic. But he wanted viewers to look at his paintings and have their eyes move upward towards something higher than this world. And um, that's deeply applicable to the gospel, even though you wouldn't think of him as, a, as an evangelical. Yeah. Well, I think jazz and visual arts are pretty similar in the sense that when you are working with somebody who understands and can explain and can share that joy, it's amazing. Uh, I don't recommend to most people to sit and just grab, um, you know, grab off the shelf a Russian novel from the 19th century. Uh -huh. But I say, but if you get to take a class with Saul Morrison like I did uh, in college, yeah. it'll change your life. That's right. Well, I completely agree. Um, it, otherwise, it's unless you're introduced to it by somebody who knows. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just foreign, you know. Yeah. Well, we're we're doing this series um, as not only in conjunction with the launch of Timothy Keller, his spiritual and intellectual formation, but also the introduction and and rollout and launch of the new Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, and that's why we've been focusing on these themes of where we've come from. But the next question, last question I have for you, Bill, is where we're go where are we going? Is there something that's next? For apologetics, what would you encourage those of us who've learned so much from you? We're only doing this because of the work that you and Tim and others have done. What should we be looking for? What should we be focusing on? Yeah, wonderful, wonderful question. Um, without throwing out the baby with the bathwater, I think the direction that I would like to see apologetics take is, for example, Alan Noble yeah. Uh, you are not your own, or um, uh, the the strange and wonderful uh, Francis Spufford. Yeah. Um, or yeah. Rebecca McLaughlin, others mm -hmm. who express the gospel not in traditional terms, but in ways that get beneath the skin. Um, you know, I think in the eighties, the concept of truth was very important. And you got all these books like Doug Grothe's Truth Decay and uh, yeah, Josh McDowell Shaper's True Truth. And yeah, absolutely right. But uh, there was a danger of uh, knocking people over the head because they, they didn't have absolutes. I think the direction we want to have projects move in is uh, one that Dick Kies and others pioneer, which is to, uh, how would I put this, uh, keep people off balance in order to subvert them with God's love. Uh, a mouthful. Uh, I mean, Jesus' parables did that. Um, he was unpredictable in the best way, but in the end, he always roped you in to something that you needed to think about and something you need to challenge yourself about. Um, I mean, Tim's book on 
forgiveness does this uh especially well throughout but especially at the end where he he says here's why you're resisting forgiveness um and he gives 10 reasons for it and um it's wonderfully subversive um and so it, although it's unsettling um i think that's where apologetics needs to be moving but without throwing away uh the love of truth and transcendence all the things we learned from uh, van til and others um i don't know who's doing this best but i think the younger generation uh will respond to the, to that kind of apologetics in a way they wouldn't to just pounding them with truth i i one i don't know if i told you this before but our daughter worked for intervarsity fellowship at harvard for years and um we used to talk, talk compare notes and she once told me dad if you put a notice on phil's brooks house door saying francis schaefer will address the problem of evil nobody will come and i said well what do you do he, she said well people need to talk about brokenness um disappointments abuse uh in order to gain the trust in the speaker which mm. will allow him or her then to address the more theological mm. issues of, of uh evil and mm. i think that's right i think that's where apologetics needs to go well that's a good word bill we're thankful for your example we're grateful that alan and rebecca are both fellows with the keller center for cultural apologetics right. and so we'll continue to encourage their work and trust the lord's provision to be able to help resource them to do this work as we gather and and equip and and deploy uh, that work throughout the church around the world and again bill we, we couldn't do it without your example and without your inspiration and this conversation is a good example why thanks bill thank you colin thanks for listening to this episode of gospel bound for more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.